I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at the issue of the reliability of the Gospels with Michael Jones. Michael Jones um, is a Christian apologist. He runs Inspiring Philosophy, a um, webpage and YouTube channel, and has a master's degree in philosophy from the University of Arizona. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, good. I'm glad to finally have you on the show. I've been a fan of yours for uh, a couple of years, so um, I appreciate the work you do. So um, to get started, if you could give uh, some personal background about your uh, theological orientation, your church background, to give listeners an idea of where you're coming from. Yeah, so I was raised in a pretty evangelical fundamentalist background. I'm not there anymore, but I keep my current denominational ecclesiastical convictions private because I don't want to strike division in the church. Uh, but I was raised very much as this sort of fundamentalist, young earth creationist background, which caused me to leave Christianity for a little while. And then slowly but surely, I came back and found a more intellectual side of Christianity, which I defend on my channel. All right. All right. Good. And um, how about as far as inspiring philosophy, um, some background behind that, how you're involved with that, how other people help you in that, and what your mission is? Yeah, so I started the channel over 10 years ago with the help of just trying to add, add some more intellectual discourse online. I never expected it to get as big as it did. That was never my intent, and it just sort of snowballed. Uh, people forget that for the first five years I was online, I wasn't even showing my face because I didn't want to, I didn't, wasn't really looking for attention, I guess. It just sort of happened. Um, and I just have sort of tried to evolve with it. Uh, and so that's generally what I do. I create a lot of different types of documentary style videos for my channel. In the past year, I branched out, started doing more YouTube shorts and TikTok and Instagram videos, just short little videos where I respond to someone or give some theological arguments in less than a minute. All right. And how um, are other people involved with you in producing your work? I mean, most of the work is done by me. Uh, over the summer, I had an editor helping me a little bit, but I ran out of funds to pay him. Uh, so most of the videos are basically made by me. I have different scholars uh, look over the videos. I have a few people spell check all my videos to make to try to weed out as many errors as possible. But most of the videos I make. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's a lot of work. Those are really in-depth. So. And uh, so, for today's topic, the reliability of the Gospels, um, you, uh, you've done some research with uh, Richard Burridge. So, um, he talked about how, this is way back in the 90s, um, the Gospels were commonly thought to be a unique genre. But he makes the case that they are ancient biography, um, according to Greco-Roman standards. And there's the book. So, yeah, this is his 2015 edition version. Um, I'm going to be making a video or a couple of videos on the reliability of the Gospels over the summer, uh, starting with pointing out why they are Greco-Roman biographies. All right. So why is that? Um, what, what's important about that? The distinction between a unique genre compared to, no, this is a, a common genre we've already known about. So – you know, Rudolf Bultmann was a very influential New Testament scholar that sort of argued this. They were sort of like a Surrey Genesis uh, document. They could have evolved out of like early Christian oral traditions. And as they evolved throughout the church, new stories about Jesus were added and eventually the gospels were written. So that was the common belief. Now, this was what Richard Burridge uh, 
was taught to believe. Uh, he even rejected the idea they were originally Greco-Roman biographies. So in his book, he says this. He says, as someone with a classics background, I was unimpressed with the arguments put forward by New Testament scholars, especially in America, to demonstrate the biographical genre of the Gospels. Therefore, a negative result was expected, exposing the biographical hypothesis as untenable. However, mm. as the work has developed, I've become increasingly convinced that it is indeed the right one and that the Gospels are part of the genre of ancient lives or biographies. So mm. he started off as a, as a, in a classics background and was unimpressed by the arguments that the Gospels were actually biographies. So he started to write on it and study it. And what he actually found is comparing the Gospels to uh, ancient Greco-Roman biographies, he found, wow, there's actually a lot of similarities here. The Gospels are indeed Greco-Roman biographies. And his work actually shifted the scholarly consensus. So prior to his work, uh, the more Rudolf Boltman idea or similar views like that, after Burridge, most scholars tend to agree, yeah, they are Greco-Roman biographies. So he basically demonstrated uh, through opening prologues, uh, internal and external evidence that the Gospels overwhelmingly in all of these different features just tend to match Greco-Roman biographies. All right. And then uh, Craig Keener in his book, is it Christobiography? Christobiography, yeah. So he takes that and develops it a lot more. He's got a whole lot of examples in there. So um, what have you learned from Keener's work? Yeah, well, Keener builds on Burridge's work. And so when we're talking about the Greco-Roman aspects, what Burridge points out is that, like, uh, if you the way you, the Gospels are written is they very much follow the, the genre of the ancient Greco-Roman biography. So they start off with a prologue. Uh, they follow the life and the deeds of one person they're writing about up until his death. The Gospels go a little further with the resurrection, of course. Uh, they they explain who the person is through his words and deeds. Very similar to how we see other Greco-Roman biographies written. Uh, they don't cover every aspect of the person's life. They'll focus on the very core central aspects. So we'll see this in Plutarch's lives. We don't see everything about Cato. Like We don't know about Cato when he was a teenager or that kind of stuff. Same with Jesus. They cover the ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And that was very common. Uh, in terms of... Uh, the verbs that are used, even like different types of words. So most of the verbs you'll see in a Greco-Roman biography uh, will be verbs uh, about the person. So like, you know, Cato did this, Cato did that, Cato spoke here, Cato went here. Same in the Gospels. They have about the same percentage of verbs designated to Jesus as you would see the verbs designated to the main character in a Greco-Roman biography. Same with style, openings, including a birth narrative is very common in Greco-Roman biographies, but not necessary even. So very similar. Now what Craig Keener does is he comes and he builds on that and he goes, okay, we know that there were biographies written that were fictional. Uh, how do we know that the gospels were not fictional biographies about Jesus? Well, what Craig Keener contributes to this work is he points out uh, biographies that were fictional about a character were written long after, long after any eyewitnesses of that individual had died out so you have like for example um what is sort of like a, a combination of a biography and a historiography the life of apollonius written you know over a hundred years after apollonius allegedly existed very much a fictional work uh we don't have any examples of fictional biographies written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of the person the biography would be about hmm. So what Craig Keener demonstrates is because the Gospels were written within the lifetime of eyewitnesses, 
and we know this, they are written within the first century. I mean, Mark 70 AD, uh, you know, that's the late date for it. Uh, again, most, many eyewitnesses would still have been around. And Papias even talks about eyewitnesses around in his lifetime, uh, when Matthew and Mark, or Matthew and Luke would have been written, and likely John as well. Uh, so then you have that, that. So Craig Keener basically points out, no one would write a fictional biography during about a person during the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. This it tells us that these biographies were not fictional. They're not novels. Uh, they're not like a Greek tragedy or some sort of fictional. They're intended to be historical. Uh, they're intended to have been written in a way to tell what actually happened. And that's what the authors who were writing these thought they were doing. So we shouldn't expect them to be trying to fabricate things about Jesus. We shouldn't expect them to be trying to make things up, but reporting what they would have gotten from the eyewitness testimonies. And this is backed up by other scholars like Michael F. Byrd in his book, uh, The Gospel of the Lord, uh, Richard Bauckham's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, that these, the accounts we see in the Gospels are coming from eyewitness accounts. All right. Well, that leads me to my next question. So, looked up an article in Wikipedia, which is sometimes helpful, sometimes less so. They have an article on the reliability of the New Testament, and there's a quote in here. The majority of New Testament scholars agree that the Gospels do not contain eyewitness accounts, but they that they present the theologies of their communities rather than the testimony of eyewitnesses. So um, what is your case for the, um, the eyewitness testimonies? Well, there's the a lot of ways to argue for this. Uh, for one thing, let's, let's take a, a case study on Luke, for example. So people will note that um, in the last 16 chapters, I believe, of Luke, uh, we see a switch to these we statements. It's no longer like Peter did this or Paul did this. It's like we went here and we did this. And so some scholars have argued this is evidence that Luke has now come in. Like he is now there. He's an eyewitness to what Paul is doing. Uh, and so we see him in those last chapters get many details right about Paul's journey. Like he knows the proper boundaries of certain uh, city-states or certain areas that are designated in, in um, uh, throughout um uh, Greece, for example, he knows that uh, that in one town the leader would be called town clerk, where in the other town would be called a ruler. He gets local slang lingo correct. These types of things, uh, and then when he so he was traveling companion of Paul, he would have went with Paul to Jerusalem eventually. He would have had time to interview eyewitnesses. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, one of the interesting things we see about Luke is that we were told constantly he's a physician, right? Okay, well. If he was a physician, we should see physician language in the Gospel of Luke. Well, there's a great scholar named Stephen Boyce who has been documenting some of this. And so look at what Luke does throughout his Gospel. In Luke 4.32, he has the statement, physician, heal thyself. Okay, so he uses language that seems to match, you know, physician-type language. His opening uh, prologue very much matches, I think it was um, loved, the scholar Loveday will will note that loved Alexander will note that uh, a lot of the language of Luke's opening prologue matches the prologues we see in medical treatises. Uh, so that's really interesting. In Luke 843, uh, he uh, goes, he says, now a woman having a flow of blood of 12 years who spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. So then we see physician language there. He uh, uses more uh, precise language when he's talking about leprosy and fevers uh, circumcision, uh, ear, ear, talks about how the ear was being healed in Luke uh, 22, 
51. Mm. Uh, he uses very precise uh, physician language throughout his uh, gospel, which indicates it's very likely written by someone with a physician background, the biggest key being the opening prologue, matching medical treatises. Also, what Luke does is he uh, does something that Richard Bauckham notes in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And Bauckham also does a pretty good job um, strengthening his case of this in the second version, which is where he mentions eyewitness accounts. He mentions his eyewitnesses. So occasionally you'll see like Luke will say things like, you know, uh, Jesus did this and he spoke to this person and that person is named. But then you'll see that Jesus, you know, Luke mentions he was talking to other people, but those people are not named. So think like on the road to Amasis, only one of the disciples is named. Indicate, and so this was a common theme you'd see in other Greco-Roman biographies and historiographies to name the eyewitness. You'd mention people. Uh, so for example, Bauckham talks about uh, some of the early biographers would mention people that were traveling with Julius Caesar. This one general was with him here. Well, why do you have to mention the general was with him? Well, this is a way for the, the writers to say, this is where my source is coming from. And we see this throughout the Gospels. Mark does it very similar with Peter because the church tradition says that a lot of what the gospel, oh, the gospel of, P the gospel of Mark came from Peter. So we see a lot of him references to Peter. Uh, also, we see at one point about uh, Simon of Serene carrying the cross. And he says, this is the father of Rufus and Alexander. I believe, wait, was Rufus in it? I forget the other guy's name. Is it Alexander? I might be. That sounds right. Name. Yeah. But he mentions them. And it's a weird thing. Like, why mention that this is, this guy is the father of these two individuals? Well, we know from Paul's Roman uh, letter to the Romans, uh, one of those guys was living in Rome at that point. So if Mark was writing his gospel uh, based on the teachings of Peter while in Rome, uh, for his audience there, it makes sense for him to go, oh, by the way, the guy that helped carry the cross for Jesus, he's the father of this guy you know here in Rome. And so this is sort of Mark's way of saying, this is where I'm getting my information from. These are the eyewitnesses. You can go ask them, and they'll tell you the same thing I'm telling you. So we see this kind of idea throughout a lot of the Gospels. And even in John, they go, it's, it goes so far as to say this is the account given to us from the beloved disciple. Then we trust his testimony. We know it's true. Uh, so it's that's saying it's directly coming from an eyewitness of whoever uh, was saw Jesus at the cross, who was there at the trial, uh, was there when the tomb was empty, and thereafter saw his resurrection appearances. So we see this kind of idea that is, idea of including eyewitnesses. And they're written, the eyewitnesses in the Gospels, including the Gospel of John, are written in a way to match the way other Greco-Roman biographies would list eyewitness accounts. So they seem very much to be getting their stuff from actual eyewitnesses they could have been working with and talking to. All right. Okay, and we'll have uh, more on some of that later. So the uh, language that uh, Jesus and his disciples disciples spoke was not Greek. The New Testament is in Greek. So um, there seems to be a lot of debate on if there were, you know, Aramaic documents written before the Greek documents. So um, what do we know about that? And, and how is that relevant? So the only document were said that could have been written in Aramaic prior to that would be something that Matthew may have wrote that Papias calls the Logia. And it's, he says that everyone translated it as best they could. So there's different theories. It was Matthew originally written in Aramaic and then was translated into Greek. With I think that's possible. I think if that happened, uh, someone used Mark to help him with translating Matthew because he was his uh, his Aramaic was not that good, and he had used Mark to try to help him with that because uh, of the similarities between Matthew and Mark. 
So that's a possibility. Another possibility is that maybe Matthew wrote a list of sayings and then everyone translated it as best they could. So someone may have taken the sayings of Matthew and put them into the gospel of Matthew with combining it with Mark. That's a possibility. Another possibility is that Matthew wrote uh, a gospel in Aramaic and then wrote one in Greek. I've heard that one used as well. Uh, and then I think Luke probably was aware of both Matthew and Mark and may have used that as well as maybe some other documents. We're not entirely sure. The only thing we know is that Matthew wrote originally something in a Hebrew dialect uh, that has just been lost now. So we're not entirely sure. Uh, the rest of the New Testament documents were written in Greek. Uh, and most scholars will agree that I think almost all scholars agree to that. Uh, and that that's perfectly normal. Greek was the pretty well-spoken language of the time. Uh, it's likely that a lot of the disciples, including Jesus, could have even spoken Greek. Uh, there's a great book I have here by G. Scott Gleaves called Did Jesus Speak Greek? And he basically hmm. makes an interesting case that in that day and age, most people would have been bilingual. And we see this in places like Africa as well, where some people that are illiterate can still speak three or four local languages. Uh, so it's interesting that, you know, because there's such a, a mixed cultural bag, they got to know these different languages and talk to people in their community. So wouldn't it be out of this, out of, out of the ordinary for the disciples and Jesus to have spoken Greek as well as Aramaic and maybe even he, some Hebrew at that as well. So it would not have been odd for them to have known Greek. And again, we also have to remember in the ancient world, uh, people wrote through scribes. So if even if all the disciples or all the gospel authors were illiterate, which I don't think was the case, they would have worked through scribes. Uh, for example, we know Cicero was very well educated and he often wrote through a scribe. In fact, a lot of times he just would tell his uh, scribe to go write a letter for him. Here's what I needed to say. You know how to structure it. Just go do it kind of thing. But I mean, the gospel authors were most likely literate. Matthew, being a tax collector, would have most likely kept records or had been able to understand the different languages to keep records for Rome. Mark was the interpreter of Peter, so he likely would have you know, been able to understand these different languages. Luke, being a physician, it's very likely he would have been trained, and he had, seems to have knowledge of medical treatises as well. And John, I think, um, was John the Elder, who would have had a priestly background, came from the priestly family in Jerusalem, so he would have likely had training as well. So as far as uh, oral, tradi oral tradition and the memorization that people went through for learning, um, um, that would have taken place before the Gospels were written down. Why, what's going on with that issue? Why is that so important? And I know there's been a lot of research, modern research, on memory mm -hmm. and how, how developed the memories of the ancient people would be. So what's significant yeah, I mean here? Craig Keener's got a great chapter on that in his book, Christ of Biography, uh, where he points out that, yeah, ancient people trained their memory quite well. Richard Bauckham notes that when, after Jesus died and resurrected, uh, the 12 disciples would have been selected by Jesus prior to this for the very, uh, the very purpose of crafting the tradition uh, of Jesus to teach the church. Like they would have been like basically the, the gatekeepers of the tradition. So this is likely what we see in the Synoptic Gospels. It's the tradition, the oral tradition of what was basically designated by the 12 to teach converts and new Christians and to use as ministry work. Uh, and so uh, we would have seen them develop a, a like this sort of like controlled, informal uh, uh, oral tradition that they could have used. Uh, and so Craig Keener also points out that studies on memory show that like when memory is unreliable, it's like it's very like uh, arbitrary things. Like there's one there's one study I remember reading about where like they brought all these people in in a room, 
And they asked them if they've ever been to Disneyland, and they all said no. And the people, the researchers kept pressing them. Yeah, yeah, someone told me you went to Disneyland. You did. Yeah, your parents took you in. You were there, and Mickey Mouse gave you a hug and these kinds of things. And so then they brought the same people back in a year later, and mo- a lot of them attested to the idea that, yeah, they went to Disneyland and they got a hug. But, I mean, that is not something that's life-impacting. <laughs> that's just something silly. Uh, memory is quite reliable when you are dealing with very impactful things, things that are life-changing, like people that witness horrific things during World War II or monumental things during World War II. Their memory is sharp on those things, and they can remember those. I can – very impactful things in your life, I'm sure you can remember. Impactful things in my life, I can remember it like it was yesterday. Like, it's not hard to rem- forget these types of things. So th- those are the things. And so what Craig Keener also notes is – uh, in his book, that studies on memory show that uh, really uh, the the most dangerous part for memorization is in the first five years. Uh, but if you get basically a memory set after five years, you're going to be you'll have it for the rest of your life. It doesn't change much after that once it's been embedded into your head. So if the Jesus movement, the early Christians were quite impacted by Jesus. They're going to have these sharp memories of him feeding 5,000 miraculously or rising from the dead or being crucified. Then that's going to basically be set by the early church. And then after five years, that's going to basically become a pretty set tradition, a very set memory that's not going to change much after that. So far be it from 10 or 30 years after that, studies on memory show that basically that memory would be set at that point. It's not going to be subject to a lot of modification or change like some people think memories work. Again, it's there's different types of memory, and we have to accept memory is actually quite reliable. Otherwise, society would not function properly if memory was not I mean, think of all the things that we would be having to change and deal with if memory was not reliable. We generally think memory is pretty reliable, especially for important things that we need to remember. It's the arbitrary or the non-important things that are subject to a lot of change and inability to remember. And sometimes we see this in the Gospels. Uh, Memory, for example, is not as reliable when it comes to chronology. You'll see this sometimes, like you'll try to remember, I remember my brother's wedding, like, wait, did they do the cake cutting before they... Uh, did, you know, did their, their first dance or with the dance with the parents or did they do that after? I can't remember, but I know that both events happened. I was there. I saw them, but I can't remember the exact chronology. And this is sometimes we see in the gospels. Sometimes the chronology between Luke, Mark, and Matthew is a little different, but that's expected when you're, uh, dealing with human memory. So it actually aligns quite well with what we would expect human, me- how human memory w- would work and would be still reliable in those regards. So the authorship of the Gospels, um, I've always or most always heard that the um, that's anonymous. We really don't know. We have evidence, but um, since the d- documents themselves don't have the names of the authors, it's considered anonymous. But you've got a different take. Yeah, I don't think they are. Uh, so they're not. Yes, the internally, internally they are anonymous. Uh, that, that's for sure. Let me see if I can find this quick paper that I forgot I wanted to pull up here. Uh, let me see if I can find it really quickly here. If not, it's not a big deal. Um, is this it? No, that's not it. There's a paper by Simon Gathercole. Uh, Simon Gathercole basically wrote a paper in 2019 arguing, yes, the um, Gospels are um, internally anonymous. They're internally anonymous. Sure, we'll give you that. But it's very unlikely externally. They did not. They never function without a title. And he draws on the fact that, like, what we have. Look at the data that we have here. 
So oh, the, 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 the paper is uh, the alleged anonymity of the canonical gospels. And it's a very good short paper. I encourage everyone to read. What he does in his paper is he says, okay, yeah, internally they're anonymous. But most of ancient Greco-Roman biographies from the ancient world were also internally anonymous. We have a couple examples that were not. But for the most part, most were um, actually internally anonymous. But they never function without a title at the top. Like you'd have like, you know, you take a scroll from like Tacitus, you put it in the library, you know, biography by Tacitus kind of thing. That kind of thing is what you would have. So that kind of thing would basically uh, have happened quite often can't find the paper on my computer so i apologize for that i don't know where i put it i put it somewhere and i just probably forgot about it and now it's not coming up but so what Simon gathercole does is he goes through this and he notes that basically if you go through every early author every early uh document that mentions the authorship of the gospels all of them agree the gospel authors are matthew mark luke and john we never get any anyone ever saying, yes, this was the gospel of Peter, or this this one they say was John is actually the gospel of Philip. None of that. Everyone constantly agrees. This is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And also, we see this happen with different traditions. So not everyone is just repeating the same thing they've been told. For example, uh, Irenaeus of Leon seems to think that Matthew was written first, then Mark, then Luke, then John. But Clement of Alexandria thinks that the gospels with the genealogies came first. So he would say Matthew and Luke were written first, then Mark, then John. So they have different traditions about how the what order the Gospels were written in. However, even on these different lines of these different traditions, they all agree it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This tells us that probably the titles uh, to the Gospels were probably original. That somehow when the first Gospels were written, they probably put at the top like you know you know the Gospel of according to Matthew or the Gospel from Mark, these kinds of things. Uh, and that was just how they started to spread out. And this is why we have it. Whereas compare it with the book of Hebrews. Okay, we have different authors trying to figure out who the author of Hebrews was. Some say it was Paul, some say others. Uh, we're not entirely sure who wrote it. So we're left with this weird sort of thing that if the Gospels were like Hebrews and we the titles were applied later, why did everyone give the right titles or the same titles? You know, we have unanimous attestation that the Gospel authors are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, unlike Hebrews. And also, if you're going to make up Gospel authors, why are you going to use two people that didn't even, weren't even eyewitnesses of Jesus, Mark and Luke. Why not use Peter, who Mark was Mark's uh, source? Why not use Paul uh, instead of Luke even? I think that'd be better. No, you, we go, we use the actual titles that were handed down to us. So if you're going to make up gospel authors, you could have come up with much better options there than Mark and Luke. So I think Simon Gathercole has done a pretty good job demonstrating that, no, the these were possibly internal these were definitely internally anonymous but it's very likely they always externally were known as matthew mark luke and john there's no reason to deny that especially even the external attestation okay and uh many skeptics would argue as far as the gospels go that they're written long long after the events described yeah i'm not convinced of that i mean and even if they were that doesn't mean they're unreliable uh, it's very likely there was a, a basically a controlled tradi oral tradition set very early by the church. And we see hints of this in, in Paul for the book, uh, The Jesus Legend, written by Greg Boyd, notes that if you go through Paul's letters, you can see hints of this oral tradition that eventually gets written in the Gospels uh, that's throughout it. So there's probably very, very likely a controlled tradition that was in place. So I don't think that's that's much of an issue. And once again, as Craig Keener notes, once a tradition is set within, you know, after five years, it's basically 
set. It's not going to have much change or variation. So as long as it's written within the lifetime of eyewitnesses or the disciples or people that would have been controlling this tradition, there's no reason to think it would have been unreliable. Uh, so that, that again, that's not an issue either. It's, again, these have already been addressed. And to talk about books that have addressed it, The Gospel of Our Lord by Michael F. Byrd, uh, Craig Keener, Christ of Biography, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham, The Jesus Legend by Greg Boyd. These are all books that deal with this quite in depth. Isn't it the case that ancient histories, ancient biographies were written uh, long after, um, much longer after the events than what we see described here in the Gospels? Yeah. Um, a lot of biographies were written far with much bigger time spans than when the Gospels were written to the life of Jesus. I mean, again, Mark, it's written within 30 years of Jesus' death. That's phenomenal compared to some other ancient biographies. So for modern standards, that doesn't look good. But if you consider it with uh, cont- contemporaries, then it looks If you consider good. it with, yeah, the ancient setting, and again, you're writing not in a modern Western culture. That You're writing in an ancient oral culture. And oral cultures very much control these types of traditions. Uh, it, you know, and this is why we see Luke opening his thing with saying, you know, like, you know, I'm doing basically, I'm getting my information from my witnesses. I'm trying very hard to stick to what was taught. Because uh, he knows his culture would be very skeptical of anything that did not come from eyewitnesses. This is what Papias tells us. He's not going to care what the anonymous traditions about Jesus are floating around are. He wanted to get his stuff from the actual eyewitnesses. So no one's going to accept the gospel of Luke or Mark unless they knew it came from an actual eyewitness. All right. Um, but we don't have the original manuscripts, so we just have translation after translation. We have all this corruption that the scribes introduced. They got this wrong, or they got this wrong intentionally. So um, how? And it's isn't it like the telephone game? Somebody says something to somebody else, who gets it farther. The farther you go down, the farther from the original you get. Yeah. So no, uh, this <laughs> is again, this is a misunderstanding of how these texts were written. Uh, so we need to think about, for example, uh, we have a lot of New Testament manuscripts and we have different families of manuscripts and you can compare them, like the majority text versus the Alexandrian texts. Uh, and so we have these different families. When we go through them, yeah, we can find variations, but scholars like Dan Wallace will note, most of the variations are just spelling errors, uh, variations in grammar. Uh, some come from very late manuscripts and are not reliable. Only like 1% affect the meaning of a text. And these are very minute, uh, like, uh, like you know, there's a place in uh, Romans, like where it says, uh, Romans 5, it says, uh, there are some manuscripts that say, we have peace with God, and some say, let us have peace with God. Anyone think that's really a big issue? No. Or John 1, um, John 1, I believe, John 118, I believe it says, um, some say, uh, some early manuscripts say, the only God at his side, at the Father's side, he has made him known. Whereas other manuscripts say the only son at the father's side, he has made him known. Okay, but Jesus is God in many other places in the New Testament, and he is also the son of God. This is, again, not an issue. So Dan Wallace notes, none of the variants affect any essential Christian doctrines, none whatsoever. Uh, Most of them just affect like these minute issues within the text. And then we can also note that uh, it wasn't like a telephone game type thing. We didn't, they didn't just copy a manuscript and then burn the old one. They would have used it as long as they possibly could. Tertullian talks about his during his time, there were still originals in various churches of Paul's letters. 
Now, also, we need to combine with the fact that we have manuscripts, fragmented manuscripts from around the same time, like P75, when originals were still in existence. Uh, there's a scholar named C.L. Porter who did a very interesting uh, work where he looked at Codex Vaticanus. This comes from the 4th century and P75. Uh, this comes from, I believe, around the year 200. Now, these are both in the same families of manuscripts. But what C.L. Porter demonstrated was that Vaticanus was working not from P75, but from earlier manuscripts that P75 would have used. And so what he basically notes is the combination of P75 and Codex Vaticanus gives us traditions that would have gone back to the beginning of the second century. So around 180, when, you know, there were still some very old eyewitnesses that could have been around, or you at least second generation Christians. So no, this is, we very much have an exorbitant amount of manuscripts. None of them affect uh, any sort of theological doctrine. Uh, and so, and we also have, from the manuscripts we have, we can basically get traditions that go back to 100 AD. And it's very unlikely there was much change going on prior to that. We have no reason to think that was going on. Okay. Yeah, that's one of the objections I hear most commonly, and it, there's really so little yeah, going for it. Yeah, I'll see it from Muslims as well. And again, a lot of them have just sort of read Bart Ehrman, unfortunately, and haven't read people like Dan Wallace or Daryl Bach, scholars that have addressed this thoroughly. But Bart Ehrman himself even admits that where there are discrepancies, they're not significant. No, yeah, he admits no theological, no essential Christian doctrines have been affected by textual by uh, any sort of textual criticism. So, yeah, the, the idea that the, the New Testament would have changed so drastically in between 70 AD and 100 AD is just absurd nonsense. On the other hand, you have the ending of the Gospel of Mark, which is, I don't know what scholars think, how much later that is, but it's, whereas you wouldn't say it introduces any new doctrine except maybe about handling snakes. Yeah, and most scholars recognize... Yeah, most scholars recognize that as something that's been added later. Uh, There's a great scholar named Clayton uh, Croy who wrote a book called The Mutilation of Mark and basically pointed out that the ending of Mark was likely lost and then somebody just tried to come in and supplement what he thought was there. So Mark probably didn't end in 16.8. It probably went a little further. Right. Uh, um, But we just lost that ending, unfortunately. Yeah, it's interesting that it's still in all the Bible translations that we still use. But at any rate, so um, the crucifixion. So um, some people would point to discrepancies, apparent differences uh, in the various four crucifixion stories. Uh, so, so now we're not talking about differences in manuscripts, discrepancies there, but um, between the various gospels. So what's significant here? Yeah, I mean, I've addressed this in a lot of videos on my channel uh, and supposed Bible con- my supposed Bible contradiction series and my supposed biblical error series. Uh, so I've gone through and done these in numerous videos. So some people will try to bring up, you know, that Jesus said different last words on the cross according to each gospel. Well, no, none of the gospels say these were his last words. They just say these are things he said while he was on the cross before he had died. And he was on the cross for more than an hour couple hours, so he would have time and said multiple things. Uh, so we need to keep that in mind. Uh, some try to say that John contradicts the synoptics and say that Jesus was actually crucified on like Thursday or Wednesday, and the synoptics say he was crucified on Friday. I've never understood why this argument has been used, because if you read the rest of John 19, for example, John says uh, that 
the bodies had to come off the cross because of the Sabbath was about to start. You know, this is why they, they break the legs and then they stab Jesus aside. Why? Because the bodies had to come down because the Sabbath was about to begin. This is implying this is happening on Friday, not happening on Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, and so when John talks about, you know, the, the priest being worried, they cannot eat the Passover meal earlier. So people think that's talking about the Thursday Passover meal. It's not necessarily, it could be talking about a specific meal that was typically eaten by the priest on Friday. And again, if, if they were, the priests were worried about eating the Passover on Thursday, you know, they, they couldn't be unclean. Uh, Jewish law said that they could, they were basically unclean until sunset, and then they would have been clean to eat the Passover meal regardless. So it seems more likely they're worried about being unclean for a meal they would have had on the day of Friday, not the evening Passover meal, which Jesus had at his last supper. Craig Blomberg, Craig Blomberg in his book on the reliability of the New Testament or the Gospels, uh, notes that it's far, that the way that John writes the Last Supper very much implies this is a Thursday night meal. Uh, especially with Judas going out and some of the disciples thinking he's going out to give alms, common practice you would do on, after the Thursday Passover. A lot of things just really align with it being a Passover meal. So I think John does agree with the synoptics that Jesus was crucified on Friday. So I think a lot of these things can easily be sorted out. And if you go to my channel, go to my supposed Bible contradiction playlist, because uh, I took out my videos, I put them in a playlist, or my supposed biblical error series, you can see all of them there and I deal with this all in depth. All right. And uh, let's do the same with the, the resurrection then. There, you have a lot of different um, one angel or two angel or all, all sorts of differences that appear there. What do you find significant? Yeah, so I recommend a book by Mike Lacona, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? Uh, so we, we there are definitely, def, definitely differences in the resurrection account. But in terms of how ancient biographies were written, this was a normal practice. You could supplement uh, or transplant different events uh, based on how you wanted to write. Uh, we see Plutarch does this in his own lives. He's the only author of these lives, and he's constantly moving different events. Or do the, when Caesar performs speeches or when Cato had a speech, he'll move in the different places. Uh, so we see this as well. Like Sometimes he'll only spotlight one witness, and in some other uh, of his biographies, he'll spotlight two people that were there. So we see the same in the Gospels, you know, spotlighting one angel or two angels, spotlighting just Mary or all the women. John only spotlights, spotlights Mary Magdalene, uh, but it does not at all suggest that she would be the only one there, uh, especially when she says, you know, we uh, went to the tomb and we cannot find the bodies, implying there were other women with her. Uh, and so we see that. We see also that in Greco-Roman biographies, you get transplant events. So when Jesus appeared to the women, it would have been perfectly normal for the gospel authors to transplant that in the timeline based on how they wanted to write the struct, the topographical structure of their gospels. So that was a normal practice as well. So the differences can be accounted for by easily just appealing to the cultural context. Uh, there's no problem here, uh, because it would be very common for an author to transplant events, restructure the chronology based to fit a more of a topographical need when they were writing their biographies. All right. And doesn't it also point to, I mean, if some are gonna, people are going to accuse the early church of um, creating a conspiracy to fabricate the story of the resurrection, if they would have done that, then you'd think they'd get their stories straight and there would have been more more consistency between the four Gospels. Yeah, it's, you know, and this has been pointed out, and I've seen an atheist you know, make this argument as well. 
you know, if they were all exactly the same, people would think fabrication. But again, what we see actually matches more of an eyewitness account. You're going to get variation from different eyewitnesses. Any In any police report, eyewitnesses are going to report different things. The Gospels, you know, basically tell the same gist of the same story, but there is variation. It fits better with what we would expect from eyewitnesses. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't think we should be um, disturbed to find differences, um, even if they're not reconcilable, because the core thing is that Jesus rose from the grave, not how many angels there were, etc. All right. So... Um, some uh, scholars will say that um, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. This is something, an exaggeration that the early Christians needed to do to make a stronger case for their religion, so to speak. So yeah. what's your take on that? It's, it just seems too speculative. Uh, and some scholars think they can peel back the layers of the Gospels and they can determine, they can tell which was added later which was original to Jesus. We see this with the Jesus seminar, them rating certain sayings of Jesus as historical or later legends that were added. And this is all just highly speculative. Uh, you know, credit to Robert Price. He pointed this out. He doesn't even believe Jesus existed, but he said, you know, like people do this kind of thing. It's like, if you want Jesus to be a vegan feminist, you just go through the gospels and you find all the verses that would fit with a vegan feminist mentality. And then all the verses that don't, you say, well, those were added later. Uh, same with this kind of stuff. How do we know Jesus didn't claim to be the Messiah? How do we know he didn't claim to be God? Because all the Gospels show that he did claim these things. Uh, he claimed to be God in the flesh, the second person of God, of the Father. He didn't claim to be the Father. He claimed to be the uh, another person of God. This is very clear in John 14 to 16, uh, uh, as well as throughout Mark's Gospel and how he narrates what Jesus does throughout his life and how he uses Old Testament passages to illuminate uh, Jesus in his life and deeds. So, and what we also see with the New Testament church is them not making up sayings about Jesus at their convenience. So look at Paul's letters. Okay, we know they were struggling with things like, should Gentiles be circumcised? What is the place of speaking in tongues in church? Uh, what about the Eucharist uh, and these kinds of things? Never once is Paul going and saying, well, you know, I got to, I, I remember Jesus said somewhere that, you know, yeah, Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, therefore it's okay. They dealt with their own issues based on their understanding of the scripture. They were not making up sayings when it would have been convenient for them to make up sayings. This is, and they reported that they would have struggles and debates like what we see in Acts 15. So they're very open and honest about these things, and they don't just resort to making up sayings of Jesus. And Jesus also says things that were not necessarily relevant or useful for uh, the later church. Uh, so, for example, uh, let me think of something. I, I've had one, but it just escaped my mind. Uh, you see things, for example, like healing of the Canaanite woman in uh, the region of Tyre and Sidon. Again, that would have been that could have frustrated some early Gentile converts, and yet the church preserves the story there. Uh, they were willing to tell the tradition as it actually happened, not what have just would have been useful for the later early church. All right, and so um, on the story of uh, similar Jesus claim of divinity. So this is often, I mean, even more than Messiah, this is something obviously the later church, if not the later councils um, attributed to Jesus. Maybe the Gospel of John, but it looks like later church. What do you think? Yeah, I, 
Mike Lacona has done a lot on um on um let me pull it up here. Mike Lacona has done a lot on this and point was just the gospel of Mark and demonstrated that throughout Mark we see a very high Christology. And it's it's done through the genre of ancient Greco-Roman biography. So in again, in this biography, you would not just say who this person is. You illuminate who the person is through their life and deeds. And what how they do this in the gospel? They do it uh by constantly citing Old Testament passages about the God of the God of Israel, and then they apply them to Jesus. And Mark does this in the very first chapter. He cites the prophets and he says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So mm-hmm. Mark tells us someone's going to come along to prepare the way for the Lord himself. Ah, this must be Jesus. No. Mark tells us that, who is he talking about? John the Baptist. John the Baptist is going to be, is who Isaiah was talking about. He's going to prepare a way for the Lord. Who does John the Baptist prepare a way for? Jesus. So right then and there, Mark is telling us that John the Baptist is preparing a way for Yahweh to come. Right then and there, in the verse opening one, opening of that. We see later in this. So Mark says in chapter three, you know, if Satan has risen up against himself and, and is divided, he cannot stand, but he come, but his, it was coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Well, he's talking about Satan. Uh, but what we know from reading the Bible is only God can defeat Satan. This is what we see in the book of Jude, for example, that even the Gabriel or even the archangel Michael can't defeat Satan. Only the Lord can defeat Satan. And we see this in places like Zechariah. So Jesus tells us that he has been able to bind the strong man and he has defeated him. So that's another interesting thing as well. Mark 4, for example, uh, Jesus awoke and he rebuked the winds and said to the sea, peace, be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Okay, this seems to be alluding to Psalm 89.9, where it talks about, again, the God of the Old Testament, Adonai, Yahweh, saying, you rule the raging sea. When the waves rise, you still them. Mark seems to be alluding to the fact that only God can calm the steam, calm the storms. But who calms the storm here? Well, Jesus does. Um, if we go to Mark 5, for example, uh, he when he raises Jairus' daughter, he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. Ecclesiastes 8 says, no man has the power to retain the spirit or spirit over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor the wickedness delivered to those who are given to it. So Ecclesiastes 8 tells us that no man has power over death, but Mark 5 tells us that Jesus has power over death. Another very interesting one there. Uh, here's another one, Mark 6. This is, I think, is a very clear one. Uh, this is when Jesus walks on water. It says that about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but he saw them walk, but they saw him walking on the sea. They thought he was a ghost and cried out. This seems to be a direct reference from Job 9-11. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. As well as in the book of Exodus, when Moses asks to see God's face hmm. and he has him hide behind a rock and then God passes by. Mark is using this language of God passing by in Mark 6 to once again illuminate the fact that Jesus is God. Not just, not just a lesser God. Not just, uh, some angelic being. He literally is God. And Mark does this throughout his gospel time and time again, constantly using Old Testament passages to illuminate the fact that Jesus is God. All right, so he does it in a different way than, say, John would, or th- certainly the church councils 
would have been a lot more direct, but yeah, still very well, significant. Because Mark is working within the, the genre of ancient Greco-Roman biography. And the way you told who told your audience who a person was is you illuminate their illuminate things about them by telling about telling your audience about their life, their deeds, their sayings. And Mark does this quite well. And he does it by constantly appealing to Old Testament passages that are clearly about God to say, oh, yeah, these passages are also about Jesus. All right. And so um, external evidence. Um, we have writings, inscriptions, archaeology, other historical verifications. What do you see that's uh, most uh, crucial for showing that external evidence points to the reliability of the Gospels? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things. We can constantly see things uh, uh, in the Gospels that are confirmed in other works, uh, like comparing Josephus. Uh, so, for example, um, in the historical reliability of John's Gospel by Craig Blomberg, he has 59 confirmed or historical probable facts in the Gospel of John. Uh, so, for example, there's a common one uh, where it talks about they have to come down, they go down into Western Galilee from from the city of, of Cana to Capernaum. And that would correlate with the, the changes in elevation, these kinds of things. They went up to Jerusalem in John 5.1. Again, correlates with changes in elevation. Uh, for You could go to uh, chapter 6.15, where it says the crowds wanted to make Jesus a king. It reflects well-known nationalistic fever, the early Christian century. And John 6, the sudden and severe uh, Squalls are common on the Sea of Galilee. So they seem to get a lot of these external facts right. Uh, Colin Hemmer does this with uh, Luke and Acts as well, going through all these different things. So we can see constantly they get a lot of the customs right of the time. They get a lot of the names right. They get a lot of the geography right. It seems very well that these were written by people who were actually traveling with Jesus, or at least the gospel authors were getting their information from eyewitnesses or people who actually saw these things and witnessed them because they get so many of these external details right over and over again. One or two may not mean a lot, but when you get like 84 or 59 right, it starts to add up. Hmm. And uh, particular inscriptions or archaeological finds? Yeah, I covered this in an older video I did uh, on reliability of the New Testament, external evidence, part five. Uh, so, and I go through and I list there are inscriptions. We find different people mentioned that are also mentioned in the Bible that show up in inscriptions, uh, like people in Paul's letters, uh, people in the Gospels. Uh, so anytime we tend to find an inscription, for the most part, say 95% of the time, it tends to confirm what we're finding in the Gospels. There are some things that there's up for debate, like Luke's census. I have a video on that as well, uh, arguing that maybe there's some problems with what Josephus wrote, not Luke. Uh, but for the most part, uh, it seems that what we're finding in the archaeological record confirms what we find in the Gospels. Well, how about that that census? Because um, I've mm -hmm. heard a lot of people say things like there, there's no reason they would have – the census would have called people to go back to their hometowns. Um, that doesn't make sense. Or... Well, we need to remember something is that uh, Rome governed each province spe spe specifically in certain ways that would fit with a lot of the customs that were already established. They weren't going to change all the customs of Egypt when they came in. Likewise, they had probably do with Judea. If the Jews were very much connected to family ties on ancestral lands, so let's say Joseph was working in Nazareth, but his actual father was still alive, and in Bethlehem, it makes sense for him to go there to be counted because that's where his family ties and his family wealth was. 
uh, this kind of idea, you know, return to your fathers and where they live. And we see something similar in Egypt about telling the Egyptians to return to their, their uh, gnome. This is where the different provinces of Egypt were called. Return to your homes so we can be counted. Something similar could have been like that happening in Judea. It wouldn't have been out of the ordinary for, you know, sons living off and abroad or living with other relatives to return to their fathers uh, so they can be properly counted, so they can get a natural registration of all the people that were out and about, this kind of thing. So I, it wouldn't have been super out of the ordinary, I would say, it, especially if we take it in context of what Luke actually says. All right. So we don't have uh, evidence that specifically contradicts what Luke says. We just don't uh, have other examples to corroborate it. The only thing we have is Josephus seems to imply that the census of Quirinius happened long after Jesus would have been born. So like after Herod Archelaus was deposed, whereas Luke seems to suggest it happened while Herod the Great was still alive. And so I have a video on that I did uh, about a year, maybe two years ago, I think it was. Uh, it's uh, did Luke misstate the census of Quirinius, and it's a forty-minute video, and I go through and indicate that maybe Josephus actually misstated that census. It wasn't actually Luke. Yeah, I guess if you're a skeptic, if you fall on the liberal side of things, then you're always going to go with the um, external evidence or anything that contradicts the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we know Josephus did get his chronology wrong at times. He duplicate events, and so I build on that and argue from some scholars that argue that perhaps no. Actually, Josephus got this census wrong. Okay. And um, how about the internal evidence? Uh, you talk about um, excessive non-theological verbiage, criteria of embarrassment, and undesired coincidences. Yeah, undesired coincidences. I would say a lot of this is secondary to data that can be useful. Wait, so what did undesired, I say? I said undesired. Undesired, yeah. So an undesired <laughs> coincidence would be something like what we see when uh, Jesus is before Pilate. Uh, he goes in in the synoptics and they ask, are you a king? And Jesus said, you have said so. And then Pilate comes out and goes, I find no guilt with this man. Okay, weird, because Jesus just admitted to the charge. Well, in John, we get more details. It sort of like fills in the details there. Uh, he comes in and he says, my kingdom is none of this world. Oh, so you're a spiritual king. Okay. So we get this idea that, you know, John sort of fills in details that have been left out in the synoptics that gives us a little bit more uh, understanding of what's going on. We see this as well in some of the Gospels. Uh, we're talking, Herod, we, we, we're getting about private conversations about Herod Antipas. Like, oh, how would the Gospel authors know this? Well, Luke, in a totally different context, Luke chapter 8, tells us that some of the followers of Jesus— uh, were servants in Herod's palace. So again, totally different context, but he sort of gives us this clue that how, on how the gospel authors would have got information on Herod Antipas uh, because they had actual eyewitnesses that were working in Herod's palace uh, that were also followers of Jesus. So we have that kind of data. These are like little things. They're not meant, they're undesigned coincidences. They're, they're not meant to piece everything together, but they, they actually show us where one gospel author was able to get his information from. So that kind of thing. So it's little things like that you can build up upon. All right. And how about criteria of embarrassment? And uh, I guess one of them, of course, is the women as the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Yeah, early Christian critics mock Christianity for this, like Celsus, for example. He attacks Christians for using women as eyewitnesses. And 
all the gospel authors report women were the first apostles. They were the apostles to the actual apostles. They were the first one to deliver the resurrection news. And so Celsus, Bill in this, is well, this is just from the, the, the ravings of a woman who didn't know what she was talking about. You know, you can't trust women's testimony. But the gospel authors were more interested in reporting what actually happened uh, over uh, what would have made their story more credible in that culture. Uh, they were they were more willing to accept the fact that women told, even though it was embarrassing to them in that culture, women went and were the first ones who found the tomb empty. Uh, and yet we we see evidence that early Jews and Gentiles would have rejected this from it just being an unreliable testimony from women. These kinds of things like that. Uh, Gerd Ludemann, who's not a Christian, notes the uh, story of Peter denying Christ. He says no one would have made this up. Uh, this would have made the early leader of the church look so bad. This had to have come directly from Peter, who would have been present at the trial, uh, because this is something you would not make up about such a prominent leader in the early church. So they're willing to admit embarrassing facts that would have hindered or hurt their story, uh, hurt their eyewitness accounts as being unreliable or not uh, loyal to Jesus in order to tell what actually happened. And uh, also, so the excessive non-theological verbiage, what What's up with that? Well, I mean, you go through Paul's letters and he's like, bring my cloak. Uh, let me greet these people in the church that are you know, not named ever again. Uh, just you're not going to do that if you're fabricating letters. Uh, if you're actually writing to the actual people, it makes sense to do that. But that, that has no theological significance 200, 300 years later. Also, look at um, look at the, the list of the 12 disciples in the Gospels. OK, if, if this is a novel, if you're writing a novel, you're introducing your characters, but most of the disciples are just sort of listed and then never mentioned again, like Bartholomew, for example, or the Sons of Thunder. Like, what's the point of that? Like, we're not ever explained why the two are given the name Sons of Thunder. It's it's doesn't serve any theological purpose, but it's there because this they're reporting what was actually handed down about the actual nickname that the, I believe John and Andrew had was the Sons of Thunder. We're not entirely sure why. So it seems to fit more with what, you know, information that would have been handed down to support coming from eyewitnesses versus things an author would make up for use as like foreshadowing in a novel, these kinds of things. All right. Oh, wow. And uh, so the the notion that the Gospels evolved, that they developed over time, uh, a lot of people made that argument. So what, how would you respond to them? Well, I mean, they do this and it's it's a weird argument because look at, for example, John. John is supposed to be the late the last gospel, but it's got less miracles. There are no miracles mentioned during Jesus's crucifixion, unlike what we see in Matthew, Mark and Luke. So if there's an evolution going on here, why are there less miracles in John? That doesn't seem to fit well with this. Uh, it doesn't. Re- and also, again, we see a high Christology already in Mark. We see a high Christology in Matthew. Same as what we see in John. We don't see an evolution happening there. We see a high Christology in Paul's letters, even. Same kind of thing of appealing to the Old Testament passages to talk about Jesus. Uh, again, appealing to the Old Testament passages about God to talk about Jesus. So we see a lot of that as well. So again, if people want to argue for the evolution argument, they really cherry pick the data there. Uh, if you look at all the Gospels, uh, they don't really evolve. All right. And finally, um, as far as all this information, uh, how um, should we apply this in terms of how is it significant for the life and mission of the church, 
for individual believers, but especially as the church? Well, I don't think there's a reason to be a Christian unless it's true. We need, I mean, what would be the point? I mean, some progressive Christians think it doesn't matter if it's true. We just have to focus on doing what we're commanded in the Bible, like caring for the poor and focusing on freedom and equality. But, excuse me, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it doesn't matter. Just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I mean, what's the point of being a Christian if truly Christ did not rise from the dead, truly didn't do the things he said he would do and said the things that he actually said? There's no reason for it because there's no actual base. So I think this is very important data for knowing these things actually did happen. Jesus really did rise from the dead. And one day we will all stand before his judgment seat and have to give an account of everything we did. So we need to realize that we're not just standing on things that are uh, fabricated or myths. These are actual truths. And that's and Jesus really is reigning on a throne in heaven. This is not something that is just uh, metaphorical. This is actually the truth. And this is the truth of reality here. So we're part of the actual church and we need to go out and proclaim Jesus really did rise from the dead. And one day all will be resurrected as well. These are actual things that are, have happened and will happen. And as far as our mission? Well, our mission is what Jesus gave us at the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Until we do that, I don't think the end is going to come. I think um, I, I think that it's the job of the church to take the Great Commission everywhere and be successful. And until that actually happens, I don't think the end will come, as Paul talks about. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's got to reign until all enemies are under his feet. So our mission needs to be uh, Jesus working through us to put all enemies under his feet and to turn the whole world towards Christ so that every knee does bow. But how useful is this information then in terms of um, evangelism? Well, it's like I said, I mean, it, we now know this is true and we have the evidence to show it is true, that this actually did happen in history. So when we go out and evangelize, we can say that we're standing on what actually happened. Alrighty. Yeah, there's a lot of people that do struggle over these questions. Uh, it makes all the difference for them. So um, I really appreciate um, the, all the work you've gone to to figure this stuff out, collect this information, and present it. So um, thanks for being on the show. My name is Dennis Metzler. Um, you've been listening to The Charge. We've been with Michael Jones um, from Inspiring Philosophy. So check out his webpage, check out his YouTube channel. I'll have links below. So Michael, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Peace to everyone.